welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. Again, I'm, I'm excited to be here. How, how many people are excited to be here tonight? Yeah. If you, if you woke up today, it's a blessing. Like, it's a good thing. I'm, man, my body works. I'm healthy. It's such a blessing to be here. Um, and uh, so I was, I've been just trying to work on, on thankfulness. You know, God, that's a command of the Lord to be thankful. And um, one of the things I've been thankful for lately is being a dad, um, Roman, if you could just turn down the lights just a little bit so I can see people. Thank you, man. Um, I've been really thankful uh, for being a dad lately. And the reason I love it is because I'm my, uh, my wife and I are like automatic heroes, right? It doesn't matter what we do or, you know, my daughter is going to think we are the best ever. Um, you know, I come home from uh, work oftentimes and I'll throw on the, the music and we'll just have a dance party with my daughter, and we'll just have this, this ball. We're dancing. Now, if you saw me dance, you'd probably say, Luke, please don't dance ever again. <laughs> like, you're torturing us. That looks terrible. You're the worst dancer in the world. But to my daughter, I'm like, I don't know, name some famous dancer. I'm like the best dancer ever to my daughter. And, and uh, uh, reading books, like my wife, uh, you know, we read, we read my daughter books. My wife's a really good reader of books. But to my daughter, she's like Morgan Freeman, you know, like she's the best narrator of books ever. Um, it's be- and, and I love that. It's natural. And um, I, I just it's, it's so cool to be your kid's hero. Um, and uh, so the, the reason I say that is because this is kind of how the Jews felt about Moses. Now, this is this is an OK illustration, but I want you to think about this. The, the, uh, the Jews grew up with an affection for Moses. They, they, he was the leader of their faith. Um, they had this affection and reverence for Moses. He led the people out of slavery, right? He did miracles in Egypt. He wrote the, the, the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch. So Moses was held in reverence by the Jews. You could even say that he was their hero, right? And so here comes Jesus in John chapter 6. And he has the audacity to claim that he's greater than Moses. He has the audacity to say, you guys think Moses is great? I'm greater than him. Even in, so if you look at John chapter 5, verses 46, he says to them, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. <laughs> Talk about bold. And uh, chapter 6 further develops this theme. This theme. So that's what we're going to look at, verses 1 through 21 in chapter 6. And the title of my sermon tonight is The Greater Moses. The Greater Moses. And you're going to have to do without um, titles tonight, so you're just going to have to remember, and I'm going to have to repeat, but that's okay. Uh, the title of my sermon is The Greater Moses. And you see, Moses gave Israel bread from heaven. But in this passage, Jesus is the true bread from heaven that comes down. Moses parted the Red Sea, but Jesus walks on it. 
and calms it with a word. He even says in verse 20, it is I, which, in the, which, is, um, which really means I am. And so what Jesus is doing there is he's saying that I am the God who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And so we see this massive case that Jesus lays out, that the, the writer of John lays out, that Jesus is the greater Moses. And this fact has some implications for us as believers that I want to review together, that I want to go over in this passage. So let's, uh, let's, enough of me talking, let's get into the meat. John chapter 6, verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Mm, do I stop right there? I've been, I've been torn all day. Do I stop reading right there? Yes, I'm going to stop reading right there. Because four things I want you to see. Four markers that connect Jesus to Moses right here in the first four verses. Number one, we see uh, in verse two, it says large cr- a large crowd was following him. And immediately you get this idea of Moses leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And the people were following him, Jesus here it says, because they saw the signs that he was doing. Well, guess who did signs in Egypt? Moses. He did, uh, we've, we've been going through on Sunday mornings the signs that Moses performed in Egypt. And here is Jesus performing signs. He's a large crowd following him. And then it says in verse, two, uh, verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain, which is, which is parallels Moses going on the mountain to receive the law of God, uh, Mount Sinai. And then number 4, you have what, what time of year is it? Verse 4, what does it say? The Passover, which, <laughs> which reminds us it's the whole purpose is, is Moses leading them out of slavery and how... Uh, God delivered them out of that. And so Jesus is literally walking in the footsteps of Moses here. So let's pick it up in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, his disciple. Philip was one of the disciples. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where's the nearest Culver's? (laughs) Now notice verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him. He's, Philip's kind of a math guy. He's, he's trying to figure it all out in his head. He goes, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a, get a little. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So let's uh, stop there. Jesus is the greater Moses, and because of that, we must follow his lead. We must follow Jesus' lead. That's my first point. And you can write that down if you like taking notes. We must follow Jesus' lead. You see, this passage begins with a crisis. It's not far into this passage where a massive problem arises. And what is that? No food. There's 5,000 people, probably more, 
A lot of commentators believe that there was a lot more than 5,000. Um, and there's no food. And the disciples have no idea how to solve this. The people are hungry. They've been wandering around for days. Jesus is like, hey, Philip, what do we do? <laughs> and uh, I was just, this reminded me of, so in college, they, the cafeteria in college was a, was a sacred place. It was a great place. Um, because every week they had pizza. Every day. Every day they had pizza. And as a college student, that's a great thing, that if they had pizza every day. I mean, um, you know, what could be better? But there was always the days when the pizza would be taken and eaten so fast that it would run out. And man, if I got there and the pizza was out, I was, it was really hard. And uh, <laughs> it was hard. And it was just funny, like you'd, you'd see a fresh pizza come out and then you'd it'd get scarfed down and then you'd take the last piece and then you go sit down and watch the next person to go up and there'd be no pizza left and you'd see the person go and walk away, you know? So anyway, it's a massive problem in my university that when the pizza was out. So I can only imagine when, when the food ran out for 5,000 people. Um, and the, the disciples show their worry, right? They, they say, you know, you know, eight months pay couldn't even pay for this. And uh, because uh, a denarii was a day's wage. And um, Andrew says, uh, you know, what, what's some kid's lunchable? What's his five loaves and two fish going to do for all this, this crowd, right? And so it's against the backdrop of this crisis that Jesus' incredible leadership is displayed. You see, J Moses um, was often crushed by a crisis, but Jesus flourished in it. Jesus flourished in it. Let me show you that. You know, um, again, this passage is comparing Jesus and Moses. Both were leaders of large amounts of people. And Moses had many weaknesses as a leader. So can any of you remember, what are some of Moses' weaknesses that you can remember? Speaking, right? You know, God had to tell him, who made your mouth? You know, is it not I that made your mouth? Can I not put words in your mouth? What were some other weaknesses of Moses as a leader? Bad temper, that's a great one. Yeah, he had anger. Um, think about when he struck the rock and the water came out rather than speaking to the rock. God said, hey, I want you to speak to the rock, and he struck it. Um, or when he, um, uh, sorry, um, when he threw down the tablets, uh, there you go, um, you know, he struggled with anger as a leader, but Jesus was a far greater leader. You know, Jesus flourished in it. And, and uh, let me just show you some examples from this text. So Jesus, um, we see in verse 5 through 9, he, he works for his disciples' faith in this crisis. So Jesus is in the midst of a pressing crisis. Where's the food? And yet he has the, the ability, the capacity to slow down. And what does he do? He tests Philip. <laughs> so verse 9, it says, uh, verse 6, it says, he said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. So question for you, why would Jesus ask Philip this question when he already knew what he was going to do? It's like, well, don't put him through that, Jesus. <laughs> Don't put a pressure on, don't put the pressure on him like that. Um, but what it really is, is Jesus' leadership. Jesus is the great shepherd 
of Philip's soul, and he has purpose in this crisis for him. Jesus doesn't want to waste a good crisis. He wants to stretch his faith. He works for his faith. You know, Jesus almost says to him, you know, Philip, just because you're in a crisis doesn't mean that you're, you're out of the hand of God. Just because I'm pressing you, just because I'm pushing you to the edge beyond your ability doesn't mean that I'm not near you, doesn't mean that I won't help you. You see, Jesus had a greater purpose in mind for Philip here. And the same is true for us. Sometimes we're going to be tested. Sometimes we're going to have afflictions that come into our life. Isn't it great to know that we can follow Jesus' leadership, right? That everything that we encounter as Christians is coming from the hand of God. And if it's a blessing, we can receive it, right? And if it's a humbling, we we can accept that too. Because it's all from his loving hand that it comes to us. And that's why Jesus can test Philip here. And yet it'd be a good thing. Yet it'd be a a working for Philip's faith. We need to follow Jesus' lead. The next next thing that shows Jesus' flourishing is is in verse 10. It says that Jesus said, have the people sit down. And it says, now there was much grass in the place. So the people, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. And so what this is is a parallel to Psalm 23. Um, and I, I can't help but be reminded of this psalm because I read, we have this book at my house. I read it to my daughter every night. It's called Found, and it's a kid's interpretation or a kid's translation of, of ESB's, or uh, of Psalm 23. Um, and it says, the Lord is my shepherd. He is taking care of me. He has good things for me. He lays me, or he, he leads me to the grass and the still waters. And uh, it's a whole psalm about how Jesus is the leader, the shepherd of our souls. And here he is, Jesus, acting that out here, leading the crowds to sit on the grass, leading them to still waters. Jesus has this hungry crowd, they're weary, and he's led them to a safe place. I love that picture that that Jesus is, he's, um, he's in a crisis. You know, when you're a leader and you're in a crisis, it reveals who you truly are. Even if you're not a leader, isn't that true that a crisis, when something hard happens to you, when, when um, affliction comes upon you, it really reveals your character? Well, Jesus in here, we just see him come forth as gold. <laughs> he, has, he has patience, he has time for his disciples, and he has time for the crowds. He leads them by, into the grass, into the still waters, and he feeds them. And so what does this practically mean to follow Jesus' lead here? Jesus is the greater Moses, yes. But practically this means, um, what this means is looking and seeing what God is trying to accomplish in my life and and receiving it. And I have a quote here um, by Jeremiah Burroughs. Some of you have have read this book. So it's, it's a book by Jeremiah Burroughs. It's called The Great Jewel of Christian Contentment. And uh, he says this about, you know, receiving everything from God. He says this. It should be the care of every Christian to observe what ways God's, uh, to observe what God's ways are toward him. Let me join in the work of God. When he offers mercy to me, to take the mercy he offers. But is God about to humble me? 
let me also join with God in, in, the work, in this work of faith. This is how a Christian should walk with God. And what is it to walk with God? It is to observe what work God is now doing and to join with God in that work so that as God turns this way or that, our hearts turn, should turn with God. I really like that quote. Um, I, what does it mean to walk with God? It, it means if God's offering me mercy, I'm to receive it. If God is about to humble me, let me join in his work. Let me, uh, let me submit to it. Is God testing me? Let me receive it. You know, Jesus, um, you can follow his lead. You can follow him. You can receive what he has for you in your life. Oh, wait, but no, you don't know, Luke, this affliction that I'm, that's under me. You don't know the pressing that is happening to me right now. You're right, I don't. <laughs> but Jesus does. And oh, that you would see that it is a good thing from his hand. Even affliction God uses for the good, for your sanctification. Even the hard things, even the humbling, God uses for good. And you can trust him, and that's why I love this point. You can follow Jesus' lead. You can follow him. So now we see, next, we see that Jesus, um, in verse 10, is going to take the place of host, right? He's going to feed the 5,000. So we have this crisis. It's arisen. And Jesus takes the place of host and calls people to eat at his table. Eat at my table. That's my second point. Eat at his table. So verse 10, it says, um, it says this, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, I love that, even Jesus gives thanks for what he receives. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. <laughs> How many disciples are there? And uh, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And so perceiving that they were about to, take, to, to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So again, here we have Jesus, massive crisis, but Jesus solves it. He takes some kid's lunchbox, <laughs> some kid's Lunchable with like two things in it, and he multiplies it. He does a miracle. <laughs> and you know, many people have tried to figure this out. Well, did he, did he have more food in his back pocket? Did one of the other disciples run to a city real quick and get it? I don't know. But we do know that it was a miracle, that he, he took what was small, what was nothing, what was, what was few in number, and he multiplied it. And I love the abundant um, um, words in the text here. Look at it in verse 11. It says, they ate as much as they wanted. I love that. And then in verse 12, they had eaten their fill. <laughs> and then in verse 13, baskets left over. You know, Jesus didn't like, oh, okay, we, oh, okay, we just had enough food. Yes, all right. Whoo, 
man, almost didn't have enough food, but we, had, we found that last crumb, fed that last family. Whoa, glad we made it. No, over and above. And, and that just reminds me of, of the sermon that I taught out of, um, out of John 2, John chapter 1 or 2, where Jesus turns the wine into, turn, turns the water into wine, and he does it abundantly. And here he is turning this small lunch into a, a grand provision. You see, Jesus is playing the host. Jesus has come down from heaven, from being with his father, and he has come to a dark land of sin, but yet he is playing the host, and he is inviting people in, and he's saying, come, eat at my table, take of my food, come, eat of it, there's no end to it, there's 12 leftover disciples, and that's, that's even another thing, I love that the disciples, they're, they're in ministry, um, John Piper makes the point to say, um, you know, what, why was there 12 baskets left over? He thinks that Jesus was making the point that if you're in ministry, if you're doing the Lord's work, there's always going to be enough for you. There's always going to be something left for you. You will not be forgotten. You will not be neglected. You will be taken care of in the Lord's service. I love that. I love that. Jesus is calling the crowds, eat at my table, and it is an abundant table. Not only is that, it's, it's, um, his table is spiritual food, because really that's what's happening here. This isn't just about bread. This isn't just about Great Harvest Bread Co. or, or Van Lars. I don't know if you know what that is. They're bread companies in Rockford. Man, if you have to explain a joke, it's just not good. <laughs> so there's so much more here than bread. Um, and this is, again, a link to Moses here, because, again, Jesus fed the multitudes of Israel with what? With bread from heaven. What'd they call it? Manna. Yes. Now Jesus is, or now Moses' bread, it would decay and run out overnight. Right? If, the, if they gathered too much, what would happen to the bread? It would get worms in it. Right? And so Moses' bread, yes, it filled them physically. But Jesus' bread was even more. It was abundant. But really this points to the fact that Jesus was the true bread that came down from heaven. And that's what it's going to say, um, that's what he's going to get to next, in two weeks, we'll preach on that, Exodus, or uh, John chapter 6, 42. Um, Jesus tells the Jews, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Who was that? What is the true bread from heaven? It's Jesus. That's why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not be hungry. He will be satisfied. And that's, so that's this parallel with Moses. Jesus is the bread that comes from heaven. And so what does it mean practically to eat at his table? It means that Jesus is the spiritual bread for us. He's our sustenance. You know, just as we eat three physical meals a day, right? We're pretty, maybe two, maybe four. But, but we eat food every day. And we are pretty insistent about our food, right? We never forget. Our bodies don't let us forget. And when we eat food, it satisfies us. It fills us. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, I am the spiritual food. I am your spiritual sustenance. I give your soul joy, your soul fill, uh, fullness. You see, this call to eat at his table is a, is a call to find all your satisfaction in Christ. To find all your fulfillment in him. It's also, it's also a call to examine your life. 
Where are you finding satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ? What other bread are you eating of? What other tables have you been sitting at? Christ is the true bread that comes down from heaven. Find your satisfaction in him. Eat at his table. And we see the crowds miss it in verse 14. Uh, they see the sign, right? So they see the bread that he, he creates, and they totally miss it. <laughs> they say, well, they get it halfway, right? So they say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They're saying, yes, in Deuteronomy uh, 18, 15. Let me make sure that's the right reference. In Deuteronomy 18, 15. Yes, you are the prophet that's going to come that's greater than Moses. But what do they do? <laughs> in verse 15, what do they do? Somebody just, you know, what, can you see there in verse 15? What do the people try to make Jesus? They try to make him king. Right. Now, this is from a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Jesus isn't the champion that's going to defeat the Romans. He's not going to be a physical king to deliver them out of a physical oppressor. He wants to deliver them from their spiritual oppression, their sin. But the people miss it because they want Jesus to fulfill what they, what they need him to do. Right? They've, they've put Jesus in their own box and they've said, this is what I want Jesus to do in my life. This is who he is. And, and we see Jesus rebuke them passively by withdrawing, right? Withdrawing to the mountain in the, in the second half of verse 15. So the crowds miss it. They miss the link. But for us, it's really unmistakable. <laughs> Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses' bread was incomplete. It grew worms in it. It left them hungry the next day. But Jesus was the true bread that came down from heaven that's, that satisfies our souls. And so let's, let's continue verse 16. Because this is really connected. This next section really is still part of the same um, theme that Jesus is greater than Moses, because what is he about to do? Moses, uh, Jesus is about to walk on the sea. And again, that draws some, that should ring some bells in your mind, um, connections to the Old Testament, but let's read it. Verse 16 says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across to the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Can you imagine that? And he was coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, or I am. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It's just unreal, unbelievable. You know, reading this passage really impresses you with his greatness. And so my final point is that we must stand in, in awe. We must stand in awe of who Christ is. You see, the disciples, they have just seen the glory of Christ and they fall back into fear. 
They have just seen Jesus deliver them. They have just seen him provide. They have just seen him work a miracle. And they fall back into fear. Isn't that just like you and me? We see the hand of God provide again and again. We see him in his word and we forget. And, and so, you know, just thinking, thinking, you know, what, what was going what in the disciples' mind? Man, guys, how many baskets were there? There was 12, and, and how many disciples are there? One, two, I think there's 12 of us, you know? Like, I think he, I think that was a point Jesus was making with us, right? I think he had it in, under control the whole time. I think he was testing us, right? Um, but again, the storm comes up, and even though they are experienced sailors, they fall into fear. But here comes Jesus walking on the sea. And the picture that it, it brings up and what it's paralleling is, is Moses. When Israel's leaving Egypt and they come up to the Red Sea and they're stuck there. And Moses prays. And this is, uh, this is Exodus chapter 14. And I'll just turn there. You've got to see this. And it says that in uh, verse 21, it says that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Awesome, (laughs) awesome. The waters, he made the sea dry land. And verse 22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground And the waters became a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So uh, so Moses split the sea, but here is the God-man himself walking on it, controlling in it, uh, and and calming it in a parallel passage. So, and, and this is really just a, again, Jesus is the greater Moses. How are we to miss that? Jesus feeds the 5,000. He's the true bread from heaven. And he is the master of the sea. And notice in verse 20, it says, um, pay really close attention to this because Jesus speaks um, as God in the first person here. He says, it is I. So he is, he is speaking in the first person as God. And, and what he's saying is, you think Moses is great. I'm the God who was in the burning bush speaking to him. I am, right? Because um, in Exodus 3, um, Moses asks and he says, who shall I say sent me, Lord? And what does God say? I am. Tell them I am sent me. And here Jesus is using the same words. Fear not, disciples, I am. And here are the disciples just left to stand in awe of him. You know, really, I, I think they're starting to get the picture. You know, the Jews, they've grown up in the Jewish culture. They have esteemed Moses, but they're getting the picture that this man is not like Moses. He's much greater. In a parallel passage, they even say, who is this that the wind and sea obey him? He's more than a man. And so this passage is, it calls us to stand in awe of Jesus. Stand in awe of him. Where are you? Where do you fall? Where's your heart? You know, it's true that every person 
here today is going to stand in awe of Jesus one day. One day we will all stand in, in awe of him. You see, in Revelation 20, God's going to judge the world. Revelation 20, 11 says, I saw a great white throne and God seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You know, Jesus is going to have the last say. He's going to be stood in awe of. And, and it is my hope that, that we would come to that sooner than later. Right? Because Jesus will either be your savior now or he will be your judge. One day Jesus is coming back to judge the earth. And this passage really calls us to stand in awe of the God-man. He is the greatest. He is the great one. Greater than Moses. You know, even those who reject God will stand in awe of him one day, right? Oh, no, I'm, I'm agnostic. I, I just think there's something up there. No, the Bible says you're without excuse. Romans 1 and 20 says that God's divine power and nature are clearly perceived, which means you have all the evidence you need to know there is a God, and that is not going to be good enough. It's not enough to say, yeah, I think there's something out of it out there. No, you must trust the God, Jehovah, Yahweh. You are without excuse. You will either stand in awe of him now or you will stand in awe of him on judgment day. And the call of this passage is to esteem and know Jesus as the great prophet of the Old Testament. He is greater than Moses. He's, he is the greater shepherd that leads his people to rest. Greater than Moses. He's the true bread from heaven that will satisfy our souls. He's the great I am of the Old Testament. God in the flesh. You know, it's easy to, when we come upon a passage like this, to spend time on, you know, Jesus is the bread of life. And he is. And we're going to get to that in two weeks. We're going to really dive into what that means. But it would be really easy to know and to miss the fact that these blessings are not yours if you've not repented. If you've not repented of your sins, your guilt still remains. You are under the wrath of God. You cannot have the rest. Jesus, yes, he's the good shepherd. Yes, he can give you rest. But if you've not repented, you can't have that rest. You do not have that rest. You will never have satisfaction in this life until you repent. And I could get up here and we, can, we will talk about the, the satisfaction that it is in Christ, but if you've not repented, that's not for you. Yet, that, that is not for you today. Oh, but I've gone to church my whole life, Luke. <laughs> I've grown up in the church. No, that's not enough. You must forsake your sins. You must repent of them. And so I just want to I just want to always return to this. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Repent of your sins. Every time God's word is preached, it's God's fresh mercy. He's calling out to you, repent of your sins. 
Turn away from them. Trust in the one who is greater than Moses, the one that is greater than any man that ever lived. We're all going to stand before him one day. We're all going to stand in awe someday. Better to do it now. Better to repent and believe while in a time of mercy. Right? Better to do it now. Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in him?